Yes. Yeah, I think when you're outside, then um, it's a different, you know, if you, you mean if you're taking a hike? Yes. Yeah, so if you're taking a hike, then... Yeah, it's a different, it's a different orientation. You're, it's not so mind, it's not so concentration oriented as the walking formal practice is. And so you want a more open awareness, just like as if you're walking down the high street and you want to be aware of, you know, Sights, sounds, road, you know, the conditions. and So just know it's going to be a more relaxed, open awareness. And, you know, you can have still keep some awareness in the body, but uh, know that, you know, you can give equal amount to what's around you. And that's partly why you go for a hike, right? To enjoy the nature. So, so it's fine, you know, but it always it helps and enhances to have some awareness still grounded here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when you forget, it's okay, it doesn't matter. You know. Sometimes you're just lured by the beauty and the sounds, and that's okay, but you know, it always helps. It's very replenishing to keep the attention. And certainly walking through the high street, it helps stay grounded. So, um, so today I wanted to just talk a little about... <clears throat> Um, practice uh, for the rest of your life. <laughs> huh? Or until September. Oh, until September. Yeah, either way, who knows which will come first. Uh, <clears throat> we don't know. We really don't. We really don't. I ride my bike three times a week. I never know sometimes when I'm going to get off that bike. Um, <clears throat> all in one piece, you know, you just never know. So, um, that's, you know, hopefully inspires us rather than depresses us. <laughs> Some people find that depressing to think about. Some people feel, feel, you know, it's lighting a fire under you. They say light a fire under your meditation seat. Think about death. Listen to an interview with Billy Collins on the radio yesterday, NPR. Some of you heard it. And he says, you know, and he's, well, the thing he says to, the, to his English literature majors, majors, folks majoring in English literature and poetry is, he said, you're majoring in death. Literature is about death. Poetry is about death. So much is about death, about dying, ending, loss. So on that happy note, um, <laughs> <laughs> as is the Dharma, you know, arisings and passings and how we deal with the unknown, and death is the big unknown. So, um, so I want to talk a little about uh, practice in daily life. I mean, we, we, we always talk about practice in daily life. In, in this, for this semester, it's been in the context of the Eightfold Path. And rather than doing a review, I just want to talk about different pieces that I think will support your practice over the summer. So, and I have lots of things to read about that. Um, 
so this is from Portia Nelson, and the uh, autobiography in five short chapters. I don't remember whether I read this here or not, but it's always worthy of hearing again. It's about practice or life and our forgetfulness and our habits. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes me forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault, and it still takes a long time to get out. Sound familiar? <laughs> Those holes we get into at work and relationship. Chapter three, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it as there. I'm mindful. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I take responsibility. I get out immediately. Chapter four, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. We finally learn after being, after learning. Chapter five, I walk down a different street. <laughs> so practice is mostly, I think, uh, in, in chapter three, I walk down the street. There's a hole in the sidewalk. I see it's still there. I still reach for the Ben and Jerry's in the refrigerator. I still get reactive to slow drivers on their cell phone. I still, you know, get caught in self-recrimination even though I know it's painful. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. I see I'm doing it. The more I see I'm doing it, the more you, you, you fall into chapter four. You know, the more you walk around it, you don't go down that same hole so that's practice. You know, we learn a lot of things in here, in the sitting, in the teachings, in the study, in the discussions, in your homework, in your reflections, in your practice, right? And then you forget it all. You know, you get on the freeway, you get stuck in traffic, and you find you're just seething monster, you know? And, and then, it's, then, then the spiritual critic comes in, the Buddhist critic says, not very mindful, failed essential dharma. You have to sign up again next year. <laughs> um, and then you start again. You know, you breathe, you forgive, you soften your body, you relax, and then you hit the next round of traffic, and you go, oh, God, I can't believe it. And then we wake up, we see there's no point in getting fretted, and we relax, and you know, that's life. So, um, so I always like to remind people as they leave any here to practice that you're going to forget. You know, you're going to space out. You're going to just be caught up in reactive patterns because that's, guess what? That's life. That's being human until we're fully realized. So, um, so this is from Francois Fenelon um, from the 16th century. And he writes, as light increases, or as mindfulness increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we previously thought. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful thoughts and feelings. I think he, well, he's, and then he goes on to say, like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. <laughs> We could never believe that we had harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We are not worse than we were. On the contrary, we are better. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter. 
while our faults diminish, the light of awareness by which we see them waxes brighter, and so we are filled with horror. Bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. So, you know, it's another thing that we see as we practice, as we start to see more and more grosser and subtler layers of our experience. You know, maybe we thought we were a good, kind person before you started meditating. <laughs> and then you realize how much envy you've got or how much... Uh, you know, vengeance or meanness or self-centeredness. You know, you start to see the reality of, of, the, of the egoic habits. You know, we all have them. We all have a, you know, filthy swarm of reptiles crawling from the cave. <laughs> no, I don't think they're that at all. But you know, we have our stuff, <laughs> and we see them. And uh, you know, which is why we emphasize compassion which we practice some on this semester. Because if we don't practice compassion, then we practice judgment. Right? So it's a pretty sort of an either-or thing almost. Not exactly, but you know, if, we do, if we don't have some kindness and forgiveness for our stuff, which we will see in, in bucket loads, then we just judge ourselves and, we, and we, we, we start to feel self-doubt, we start to feel hopeless, we, start, we, get, we give up, we feel despair, as if we're doing something wrong. And as, as Fenelon talks about, it's, we're actually, it's actually good news, good news to see this stuff. We're seeing these subtle layers. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine at lunch today with you know, well-known, respected, you know, meditation teacher, internationally known, and, he's, and he was saying, you know, I'm, I'm seeing all these subtle layers uh, of these ways that I'm unkind to myself. You know, and this, he's been practicing for probably you know, 40 years, 30, 40 years. You know, it's like, and it's just a different layer. It's like, oh, I thought I dealt with all that self-hatred and self-loathing. And, and it's like, it's on a very subtle level, the way we subtly pull back, the way we might subtly reject or our experience. You know? So as, as mindfulness deepens, we see these subtler layers and um, it's actually good news, because once we see them in the light of awareness, we're no longer in them. As the Dalai Lama once said, if you're going to hurt somebody, do it consciously. You know? If you're going to hurt somebody, do it consciously. Do it mindfully. Because if you keep doing it mindfully, at some point you won't want to do it, because you see how painful it is to hurt somebody. But if you go unconscious, if you get drunk and then do it, you'll keep doing it. Because right? you're not aware, you won't see the impact on you or on the other person. <clears throat> so, so, and to to, um, to on that same theme, to keep in mind, you know, the the critic, you know, the Buddhist critic that you may have now evolved into, developed. You know, what was previously just a you know, you know, parenting critic or a you know, work critic or a golfing critic has now become a Buddhist meditation critic. <laughs> Not very mindful. <laughs> so uncompassionate. I can't believe you said that in that way. That's so harsh. <laughs> God, how long have you been doing this practice? You know, and it just... Mm, 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 mm. Thank you for your opinion. Very interesting. Go bother somebody else. Not today. Or yes, that's really... Yes, I'm really uncompassionate. Thank you. That's really helpful. 
different strategies. A great book called Soul Without Shame. I highly recommend it to any of you who struggles with your critic. Soul Without Shame by Byron Brown. Really great book on the critic. Very practical. A little dense, but practical. Um, so I'm going to read this thing that I read a lot. The, I might have read it here. I'm sure I have somewhere. Called The Checklist of Feeling Pathetic. Have I read this here? So it's a checklist of things that we'd like to do to ourselves, which make us feel bad. And they're sort of critic-related. So the six, six cartoons. Choose, so she's thinking, like this great winner person, choose somebody and compare yourself unfavorably to them. Ever do that with these successful, brilliant people you know? Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. <laughs> I once had a friend who I, I she had a 10... 10 times magnification mirror, which I thought was a complete setup for misery. You know, like, I mean, it's bad enough looking in the mirror, but then you magnify it. <laughs> and, you know, I got her to reduce it to eight times magnification. It was a great success. Um, relive embarrassing moments. This is a very common meditation theme. Relive embarrassing and awful moments that occurred years ago. <laughs> know yourself doing that in meditation? like, oh, I can't believe I did that. Oh, let me think about that again. Ooh, I can't believe that. <laughs> it's so bad. <laughs> it's like we're, we're these self-torture people, you know. Uh, make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. <laughs> and I would add especially people that, that share your last name. Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. And the little cartoon is a... There's a woman getting a compliment. Oh, you look great. And she's saying, don't patronize me. <laughs> and lastly, resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you will always feel. Ever do that? Most times we're feeling anything negative. We think that we're going to feel like this forever. This physical pain, this sadness, this loss, right? We, feel, we believe it's going to be forever. And then it changes. And then we believe the next thing. Oh, I'm now happy. Great. I'm really happy. I'm going to stay happy. And that changes. <laughs> Set up for misery. So, so um, here's another one of my favorite readings. I'm just going through my favorite readings. I thought I'd have fun tonight. So, uh, this is from Lao Tzu. I think I read this. In this class. I get confused between my Monday night class and this class, so forgive me, but they're all good to hear a gazillion times. So um, <laughs> this is Lao Tzu, and uh, he's speaking to, uh, and I, I spoke about this last night, um, uh, last night, Monday night, about independence and uh, non interdependence. And one of the things I talked about was how um, we, over time, over in our practice, we become independent, what's what the Buddha calls independent of independent of others in relationship to the teaching, which means we, we, we know from our own experience, we know the truth of our experience, and we become self-reliant in relationship to what we know in, in regards to these teachings. So in the beginning, of course, we study, we learn, we, we receive, and that may be decades, but at some point we start to get what this practice is about, what the truth is about, and we become independent, we become self-reliant, we, be, we trust our own awareness and our own experience, right? So he says, always we hope somebody else has the answer. Someone, some other place will be better, and some other time it will all turn out. Well, this is it. 
No one else has the answer. No other place will be better, and it has already turned out. Notice how you feel about that. <laughs> no one else has the answer. No other place will be better, and it has already turned out. At the center of your being, you have the answer. You know what you are. You know what you want. There is no need to run outside for better seeing. Rather abide at the center of your being, for the more you leave it, the less you learn. Search your heart and see that the only way to do is to be. Rather abide at the center of your being. Rather abide in the center of your own experience, your own awareness, your own understanding. This is this is where you where you where you see the truth, not in somebody else's words, not in somebody else's experience, but in your grappling with your own experience. This is a great line from Han Shan, a Chinese poet, who his first line is, "If you look for the truth outside of yourself, it gets further and further away." The truth is right here, in our experience. We don't have to we don't have to look very far to find it. We just have to pay attention meeting it, opening to it. The more we get the critic out the way, the more it actually allows us to, to, to experience it, to open to it, no matter how icky or difficult or embarrassing. So, um, so supports for our practice. So, um, of course, the formal practice is, the, is one of the great supports, the great pillars. Meditation, formal meditation sitting, walking practice, and any other practices you do to support awareness, like yoga or tai chi or qigong, or maybe art or music. But specifically, the meditation practice is that that's a, it's what's considered a direct practice. It directly works on the mind, on awareness, building awareness. And so it's indispensable in this journey of awareness to, 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 make, to make a commitment to, as much as you can, to a daily practice to sit ideally for a minimum of 30 minutes a day, and if you can, twice a day, but at least once a day. And really, you know, and over time, that, that builds a consistency and a kind of muscle in the awareness, as you probably, have you noticed that? And the more you sit, the more consistently it builds, a, there's, a certain, there's a certain kind of stability in the awareness, stability in mindfulness, yeah, and it starts to spill out naturally into other areas you wouldn't expect to be mindful. So I was talking to a student yesterday, and she was noticing um, uh, that she's um, she meditates at night. So in, in the ha- her habit she'd gotten into the last four or five years was to you know finish work, go have a beer, finish work, go have a glass of wine, and of course now she's sitting in the evening. It doesn't work so well because the meditation is dull. Even if half a glass of wine, the meditation just doesn't happen with that because the clarity's lost, right? So we start to, you know, and we start to want, we start to want to cherish that, that awareness. I, I, I remember when I was at college, you know, I was this punk rocker and it's a bit of a wild thing. And um, I started to go to bed early because I wanted to get up early because I so valued my practice and it changed my life around. It wasn't like, oh, I should. It was just like, no, I want to be clear. I want to be bright. I stopped drinking. I stopped doing drugs. Like, no, I, I, I value this awareness. It's much more important than anything else. So it changed so my life naturally oriented towards that. So, um, so I highly support you doing that. Um, 
And so the many things about practice, I could go on for a while, but I won't. I'll just say a couple of things. One is um, uh, to cultivate beginner's mind. Remember that we talked about beginner's mind? Beginner's mind is that mind that we bring that's inquisitive, like a child, curious, open, doesn't expect to know what's going to happen. I I said every day, I I never know what's going to happen. I just don't. It might be full of thoughts, it might be incredibly luminous and radiant and empty, it might be open and heartful, you just never know, you never know. So to be curious, to be open, to not to go, oh, sitting on it, and uh, and I sat yesterday, and it's going to be just, you know, breath, yada, yada, breath, you know. <laughs> you just don't know. <laughs> Meta shmeta, you know. Um, so this is from Henry Miller. The, poet, the writer who took up painting in life, he wrote, I remember well the transformation took place in me when I first began to view the world with the eyes of a painter. The most familiar things and objects which I had gazed at all my life now became an ending source of wonder. And with wonder, of course, affection. A teapot, an old hammer, a chipped cup. Whatever came to hand, I look upon it as, as if I'd never seen it before. To paint is to love again and to live again and to see again. And I would say to meditate, to be aware, is to love again, live again, and to see again. We see things. You know, I found myself on retreat falling in love with a teapot, you know, or a teacup, or a fork, you know, just sitting there by itself on the table. It just, it just brings a certain affection and warmth and curiosity when we're present, when we're awake in this beautiful sensual world we live in. So also to um, the supports for practice to, to do, uh, take some time to do meta practice and compassion practice. You know, it's essential that we flavor and imbue the practice of awareness and mindfulness with kindness, with care, with softness, with gentleness, with tenderness, and the, the, the practice of metta, you know, to do five minutes a day or do a meditation once a week or you know, do that for the, for, your, for the next three months if that's what you're drawn to, to, to you know, if you know, do it mostly to yourself if that's where it's needed or do it to people in your family or work or you're having conflict with. It's tremendous. It can make a tremendous difference just to hold somebody in your heart for five minutes a day that you're having difficulty with. You'll change your relationship to them just by holding them in a different lens you know, over time. It's quite remarkable. D.H. Lawrence wrote, those who go looking for love never find love. Only the loving find love and they never have to look for it. So we all, you know, we're creatures that, that long for love, right? We all love to be loved. It's a beautiful thing. And we think it's out there. And of course, it's always within us. And the source is always within us. Not that we can't receive it from the outside, but the more that we embody that which we want to be, the more it seems to arise everywhere in our lives, right? But if we think it's just out there and not here, then of course we're an empty vessel with a begging bowl. So the practice of self-matter is a beautiful way to, to, to start to fill up that reservoir of, of love and self-love. Beautiful practice. So um, the other thing that I'd like to support people in doing is to do retreat. How many people have not done a retreat here, like a silent meditation retreat? One day count? No. 
<laughs> residential. So maybe half of you, okay. So half of you have. So I highly recommend, and those of you who have, doing another retreat. You know, it's, just, it's, it's a tremendous support for practice, for deepening, for really getting a sense of what this practice is, is the retreat form you know, we just get time to be unencumbered with our lives, and we get time to drop into ourselves and the silence and the meditation and, and get a deeper sense of, of that and ourselves and, and what this is all about. You know, that's where the, the practice came out of a very, you know, came out of a lineage that was, you know, the, the monks and nuns and back in Asia, there was a lot of silence and a lot of meditation. So um, I want to read a poem that I wrote about um, this, the beginning steps as we um, as we enter that journey. This is more about beginning the journey, but it can also applies to, to retreat. It's called, what are you doing here? What are you doing here as you slip off your shoes and your feet touch the cold and ancient stone of the temple floor? Though incense lingers and you stay a while, you are not quite sure what the tug is that you feel pulling on every twisted sinew in your tired body. But something lingers in the sweetened air, and you get a taste, a faint whiff, of something so unfathomably ethereal, yet thunderously present. Something that shatters every shell, every structure, every illusion you like to carry about yourself. Until at some point you feel naked, uncomfortable, and alone, but also feel the warm hands holding you that would not let you fall. There you feel an invitation to open to risk everything you knew, all that you held precious, to find that, to taste, to grow into that which you have been searching for a lifetime. So sometimes we go through, we do a retreat or a period of silence or a period of solitude in nature and we, we go through a threshold you know, where we, we journey into ourselves and it becomes its own beautiful, mysterious journey. And we, we start to unfold in different ways. Beautiful thing. So um, there's the formal practice, sitting, walking, etc. And then there's um, so another, the other piece I want to say about that is the importance of staying inspired. So I know when we have these breaks between the semesters, people often say, they report that they, their practice waned because they, one, we didn't have, well, for one reason, because we weren't having that constant reminders, and the reminders often help us either stay focused or keep us inspired. If you're not inspired, you practice getting up in the morning half an hour earlier before you go to work, you know, like, you know, not many people go, whoopee, I get to get up half an hour before, <laughs> before everybody else, can't wait. No, we need to be inspired and motivated to do that, right? Otherwise, why would we get up, you know, and deal with feeling tired? So, so to know what inspires you, you know, what, what motivates you to practice? Is it, is it, you know, for me, mostly it's been having contact with teachers, teachers who inspire me, who, are, who really I learn from, you know, either live, ideally, you get to go to a sitting group or a class or a retreat. Or you listen to them online, all these millions of talks online now, or you read their books, you know, just to, to keep, fat, keep feeding yourself. It's really important to feed the Dharma in you, feed, keep that alive, because you're not going to get it from CNN, you know, or ESPN. 
You get something else from those. So you don't. You don't get. You're inspired to practice, right? So when we witness this, this practice is counterculture. So you have to keep feeding it, or it just the the momentum of culture will not take you towards your meditation pillow. Uh, suffering of life will, but not the not the mainstream culture. So to stay inspired. You know, you know, make a commitment to meet with your Dharma buddy once a week. You know, maybe go over the homework again, or, or choose a Dharma book for the summer. You know, and you and you read it. You know, and you read a chapter a week, and you talk about it, and you put it into practice. You know, you, uh, you know, check out some books before you go, or you, you know, listen to some audio series from Sounds True or from Dharma Seed. Dharma Seed.org is a great online tape library. Um, which we don't know about, has thousands of talks from this community, Dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A, seed, S-E-E-D.org. Um, so, yes, you know, keep the fuel, keep the lamp burning, as it were. Uh, and then also, you know, the, the more informal supports for practice. So for me, that's being out in nature. And nature is a, gr- is a great ally for keeping us alive and keeping us inspired and keeping us, you know, the, 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 the Dharma is, reveals itself very easily in nature, right? Of silence, interconnectedness, emptiness, love, selflessness. It's all revealed in impermanence. It's very self-evident in nature. So make use of this beautiful resource that we have here. Take time, you know, it's, take time to unplug, you know, you know, notice notice what it's like when you're plugged in all day to your computer and your cell phone and whatever other technology you're into, and then the, the difference between that and a day where you just and you go for a hike in Point Reyes, and the qualitative difference in your being, in your awareness, in your heart—it's very different. So take time to unplug from that pull, which is often an addiction these days to technology and staying connected and all of that. To know it, to see that habit, and it's how, how unsupportive that is for um, practice, for, for, for awareness. So being out in nature um, also lightens the heart, brightens the heart, you know, when it's, life isn't so easy. So it's good to, you know, bring balance, you know, ask yourself what brings joy in your life, you know, and how much time do you devote to giving yourself joy? Well, I've got to, you know, do the laundry and the shopping, and I've got to get the kids to school, and I've got to work. And uh, well, next week I'll read that book that I'm really hoping to read. You know, or go to that movie. Or how often do you postpone joy? It's a good reflection. You know, sometimes I ask people that in my practice, and then they're like, "Well, I'm, uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, last time I did something that was fun. You know, and we need to balance the heart. You know." So we're not just working and doing, you know, so we're being, you know, and joy and lightness and laughter and happiness invites us to be. So this is um, from Mary Oliver, great nature poet, called Messenger. My work, such, and she's such a great advocate for the medit- meditative life, she says, my work is loving the world. Here the sunflowers, there the hummingbird, equal seekers of sweetness. Here the quickening yeast, there the blue plums. Here the clam deep in the speckled sand. Are my boots old and is my coat torn? 
Am I no longer young and still not half perfect? Let me keep my mind on, ma on what matters, which is my work, which is mostly standing still and learning to be astonished. Which is mostly standing still and learning to be astonished. If that was all of your practice for the summer, that would be a great practice. The Phoebe, the Delphinium, the sheep in the pasture and the pasture. My work which is mostly rejoicing since all the ingredients are here. Just like what Lao Tzu was saying, all the ingredients are here. My work which is gratitude to be given a mind and a heart and these body clothes and a mouth with, to which, with which to give shouts of joy to the moth and the wren and the sleepy dug up clam. My work, which is gratitude, to be given a mind and a heart and these body clothes, to which to give shouts of joy to whatever we encounter in our lives. So, and then the, um, the support of Sangha, of community. You know, at some point we mentioned the three jewels, the jewel of the, the Buddha or this quality of awakening, the cap uh, capacity to awaken, the, the, the jewel of the Dharma, the, the teachings, the practice, the path, and the jewel of the Sangha, this community, right? How much practice would you have done if you stayed home tonight? Any? Maybe 20 minutes if you're lucky? Maybe read a book for five minutes before you fell, fell asleep. Right, so when we come together, it inspires, and we practice more. We sit longer, we, we, we're more focused, there's more energy. So, you know, come to classes during the summer, you know, go to a sitting group, there's lots of sitting groups, there's Monday night, there's all kinds of classes. Find community. Join a Kalyanamitta group, which are smaller groups that are focused around practice. You know, make use of these resources, you know, very precious. Inspire each other. Talk to your Dharma buddy. Go watch Dharma movies. Or, you know, something. <laughs> I just downloaded, what was I downloaded? The, the movie on the, the, that was on PBS, on the Buddha. You know? I hear it's a great movie. There's lots of great Dharma films out there. There's Dharma film clubs, even. Um, so, other supports? Silence. Take time for silence. Be in silence. Take a silent meal at work once a week. What a radical thing. Leave your computer, go out into the, I don't know, the parking lot, doesn't matter, the park, the bench outside, and just be and be present to eating. Slow down. Take a silent meal at home. If you, if you live a house share with your beloved, have a silent meal together. It's a beautiful thing to do. But take time to be quiet. You turn the radio off when you drive. Turn the cell phone off when you drive and just be present in the quiet as you drive. It can be great meditative practice. Gandhi says this, he says, In the attitude of silence, the heart finds the path in a clearer light, and what is elusive and deceptive resolves itself into crystal clearness. Our life is a long and arduous quest after truth, and our heart requires inner quiet to attain its true height. So what else? Lots of things. So um, to remember the precepts. The precepts are a great support in our lives when we live these lives that are messy and complicated and complex. To take refuge in the precepts keeps our life very simple, keeps our ethical life very simple. To refrain from harming anything, anyone, any being. 
to refrain from taking anything which hasn't been given to you, which might be someone else's time or money or stuff or a credit. Refraining from sexual harm, refraining from using your sexual energy to cause harm to yourself or another. Very important precept. And then to practice wise speech. We there's a whole teaching on wise speech in the Eightfold Path. To speak what's truthful and useful. To think about the you know, reflect on whether this is the right time, the right person, the right place, and the right subject for a conversation. Do not have that really difficult conversation with your partner at midnight when you're both really tired and hungry. This is from the Buddha, from the Dhammapada. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with an impure mind and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart behind that plow thing. (laughs) See, it's ox, cart, it's all in there, plows. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with a pure mind and happiness will follow you as your shadow unshakable. How can a troubled mind understand the way? Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. So, here we are. I ran out of time. Surprise, surprise. Let me leave you with one other quote or two. (laughs) Why not? So, um... So, you know, and part of our practice is what we do in the world, how we take our practice off the cushion into our lives, into our relationships, into, our, into this world, to, to, to bring some goodness and to transform the world in some way, to not just practice in isolation. There's a lot of great blessings come out of our practice and great nonprofits and social work and engaged action. And so this story I really like, it's... Um, um, it's an old story, and it's, uh, it goes like this. It says, In the 1930s, a young traveler was exploring the French Alps. He came upon a vast stretch of barren land. It was desolate. It was forbidding. It was ugly. It was the kind of place you hurry away from. Then suddenly the young traveler stopped dead in his tracks. In the middle of the vast wasteland was a bent-over old man. On his back was a sack of acorns. In his hand was a four-foot length of iron pipe. The man was using the iron pipe to punch holes in the ground. Then from the sack, he would take an acorn and put it in the hole. Later, the old man told the traveler, I planted over 100,000 acorns. Perhaps only a tenth of them will grow. The old man's wife and son had died, and this was how he chose to spend his final years. I want to do something useful for the world, he said. Twenty-five years later, the now not-as-young traveler returned to the same desolate area. What he saw amazed him. He could not believe his own eyes. The land was covered with a beautiful forest, two miles wide and five miles long. Birds were singing, animals were playing, and the wildflowers perfumed the air. The traveler stood there recalling the desolation that once was. A beautiful oak forest stood there now, all because someone cared. 
I love that story. It touches me every time I read it. You know, something as simple as planting acorns. You know, so we all make a difference in our own way. You know, maybe it's planting acorns in people's hearts or in, in troubled kids in the inner city or whatever it is you do in your work as a teacher or as a social worker or as a, you know, who knows what you do. But we can all plant those seeds, those acorns. So, um, so I'll leave you with this from George Bernard Shaw. He says, this is a true joy in life, being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one, that being a force of nature instead of a feverish little cloud of ailments and grievances, complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. I am of the opinion that my life belongs to the whole community, and as long as I live, it is my privilege to do for it whatever I can. I want to be thoroughly used up when I die, for the harder I work, the more I love. I rejoice in life for its own sake. Life is no brief candle to me. It is a sort of splendid torch which I have got to hold up for the moment, and I want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing it on to future generations. So, you know, that, you know he's embodying the, the qualities of the, the bodhisattva, the, the, somebody who devotes themselves out of the fullness of their practice and compassion to to dedicating themselves to doing good work and to relieve suffering in the world. So, um, so I hope that's helpful. Just some thoughts, reflections. Um, any any closing comments before I just wrap up with some announcements? Any? any I mean, Joe. Thank you. Oh, thank you. For this. <laughs> Okay, you're welcome. welcome. Yeah. Thank you, Mark, for your dedication and you. for teaching this class and envisioning it. I know I've learned a lot, and um, you've been a big inspiration for me. So thanks. Great. Thank you. Always happy teaching this class. So please fill in the evaluations. Um, I think there's evaluation forms somewhere. If Sarah's hearing this, you can put them out. I would like to hear feedback from you about what worked, what didn't work. So there will be a third semester. It starts uh, September 15th on Wednesday for 10 weeks with Shada and I. Um, you can um, register online and we'll be covering different, not such, with different aspects of teachings. We'll be doing the life of the Buddha. We'll be talking a little about some of the perfections like generosity and investigation. We'll be covering the last two of the Brahma Viharas of, of the heart qualities, equanimity and, um, and, and appreciative joy. Uh, we'll be talking about engaged Buddhism uh, and Nibbana, the fruit of the path, different things like that. So I hope you can join us. Um, and um, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.